I want to quickly introduce our preacher for the day, Dr. Felipe Dovale. Come on up, Felipe. Uh, Felipe and his wife, Carla, and their daughter, Eliza, have been worshiping with us since last fall when they came out here for Felipe to be the assistant professor, well, not the assistant professor, right, one of the assistant professors of biblical and systematic theology at TEDS, but you're our assistant professor, right? Uh, I have <laughs> I've really enjoyed getting to know Felipe and his family this year, and I'm thrilled that he's agreed to step into the pulpit for us today. Let me pray for you, Felipe. Father, we thank you that you equip your church with your word through your servants. We pray that that would be the case for us today. Open our hearts and our ears. Open Felipe's heart and his mouth as he proclaims your praise today. We thank you. Amen. Amen. All right, good morning. All right. The word I want us to focus on this morning is worth. Worth is one of those concepts that often define our ordinary lives. Our sense of worth is the estimation we have of ourselves. We weigh ourselves up and judge ourselves either to be enough or not enough. If we are pleased with what we see, we feel worthy, confident, comfortable in our own skin, deserving of love and acceptance. If we are not pleased with what we see, which if you're like me is the scenario that is far more common, we feel unworthy, wishing to disappear into ourselves, not deserving love or welcome. Now, usually these adjudications are made on the basis of what we possess. If we possess enough of something, we are worthy. If we lack enough of something, we are unworthy. Worth, we are often tempted to believe, is decided by what we possess and can result either in great confidence or in a great sense of shame and loss. Now, St. Paul, in our Philippians 3 text, wishes to speak into these dynamics. He wants to turn our eyes to surpassing worth, as verse 8 states. In fact, he desires to do something much more than this. He wants to reorientate and recalibrate our understanding of worth entirely. Worth, he tells us, is not marked by what we possess. It is marked by what possesses us namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things that Paul once thought granted him worth now appear to him as deficits. Paul's worth is found in his union with Christ. So the big idea that I want you to take away from today's message is this. Receiving the gift of Christ recalibrates all of our conceptions of worth. Being, because Christ was given to us without regard to our worth. Possessing the right things no longer establishes our worth. Being possessed by Christ does. As a result, worth is now not attached to the typical things that the world considers powerful or prestigious. Our church, therefore, is called to disregard these worldly structures of worth. For they lead either to false confidence or great loss. And instead, we have to grant honor to those who have the least worth in the eyes of the world. Or, to put it more succinctly than that, because of Christ, worth is now no longer about possessing, and our community must reflect that. So, 
the first point I'd like for us to take in is that it is a common thing for human beings to seek for worth through the possession of various goods, traits, or attributes. This is a phenomenon familiar to anyone who has spent any time in a playground during recess. Right? There, owning certain types of shoes garners worth and acceptance, or having the wrong kind of haircut leads to rejection. And I'm not speaking from experience. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't lie when I preach, should I? <laughs> but we'd be missing the point if we thought that those, those dynamics are found only in playgrounds. Our world, even our churches, are regularly coordinated by various different structures about what we assume as worthy or not. Consider, for instance, some of the recent analyses of the invasion of Ukraine from certain news outlets. When considering why this war has brought about such outrage amongst people in the United States, some, some have said that it is because the people in Ukraine look like us, whoever us is. For instance, on CBS, one news reporter said that Ukraine isn't a place, with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan, that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European city, one where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it isn't going to happen. That was a quote. A deputy chief prosecutor in Ukraine said, it's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Another news outlet reported, what's compelling is looking at them, the way they are dressed. These are prosperous, middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from the Middle East or North Africa. They look like any European family that you'd live next door to. End quote. And there are more. But the idea should be obvious enough. Rather than witnessing the horrors going on in Ukraine and, realize, and analyzing them in morally adequate terms, that this is a siege wrought by the sinful desire for domination and cruelty, these people cho choose to apply some external criteria for worth that sees the possession of blue eyes and blonde hair, a middle-class life, and European culture as worthy. Folks who lack these things, people in Syria or Iraq, they say, are unworthy, for they do not possess these things. Now, to some extent, all of us operate with some external criteria for worth. I know I do. Maybe it is not quite so obviously problematic like the previous example, but it is a criterion for worth all the same. Now, these criteria are diverse, but they include any kind of standards that operate according to the flesh, as Romans 8.5 puts it. It might be really specific to our lives. For me, it is publishing in a certain kind of journal. I'm an academic, you know, having a load of books with your name on the cover or whatever. For Paul, the worth he found on account was on account of his observance of the law, as verses 4 through 6 detail. But they may also be very general or systematic. Racism, sexism, disregard for the poor, negative associations that we attach to disabilities, or anything like that. All of these are also external structures of worth. Now, according to Paul, operating according to these structures yields one of two results. On the one hand, seeing our worth in what we possess yields misplaced confidence. Paul had confidence in the flesh, verse 4, placing his weight on the shaky foundations of worth acquired through the observation of his own acts and behavior. 
If we operate according to the flesh, well, then we can have confidence too, if we are lucky. We can have a body we like, or a sense of success with which we are happy. On the other hand, the pursuit of worth through possession can lead to experiences of shame and pain through loss. We desired to possess that which would establish our worth, but it is beyond our reach, leaving us empty-handed and empty-hearted. The trouble with both approaches, however, is that our possession of those things that we believe will grant us worth actually possess us. That is to say, if we look to possess things to provide our worth, they actually possess us by reducing who we are to what we seek from them. If our worth is acquired by possessing something, we become that something. It defines us. Worth is something so deeply woven into our sense of identity that if we reduce it to the possession of some earthly good, we become that thing. As my favorite theologian, St. Augustine, and everything I do has to have some kind of St. Augustine thing on it, he puts it like this, one becomes conformed to that which one loves. Now, just like we think we possess our iPhones when they, in fact, possess us, when they demand our constant attention, there are diagnoses for these kinds of phenomena, in, these, in the same way, the object through which we seek to garner worth possess us. Now, Paul tells us that we realize that worth, that we need to realize that worth as possession is futile. He considers everything, and he means everything, whether it's the observation of the law or superiority on account of race or gender, as lost or completely unable to secure the worth they promise. If they are sought in an effort to acquire worth, they are garbage, dead in the water. The fundamental error here is to seek worth through possession. And this is an error because the true gain offered to us in Christ is not credited to us on account of our prior worth. Rather, it comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, says verse 9. There's a fundamental shift being proposed by Paul here. One from seeking worth through possession or to being given worth through being possessed by Christ. Christ Jesus took hold of me, says Paul in verse 12. That worth that is surpassing was given to Paul when Jesus brought him near. Paul immediately makes clear that the claim he is not making is that he is the one who has taken hold of Jesus like one takes hold of a winning lottery ticket that will provide a life of luxury and prestige. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, he says, because he wants us to see that a radical reorientation has occurred. Paul goes from saying, I have more, in verse 4, to Jesus has me, in verse 12. And it is this shift that throws all of his previously secured worth into question. When he said, I have more, he understood his worth in terms of his possession. When he says, Jesus has me, he understood his worth in terms of the deep and intimate union that he has with Christ. Now, one of my favorite theologians, Grant McCaskill, puts it like this. He's got a Scottish accent. I'm not going to reproduce it here. Whatever Paul previously considered to have capital value, he now considers as a capital deficit 
what had been to him gain is now loss. Now, it's important to take a moment to observe how this works. We need to recognize that worth operates on the basis of a certain kind of capital, the possession of which counts as a credit or as a deficit in our estimation of ourselves. Now, this kind of capital, continues McCaskill, is associated, this is a quote from him, with the perception of our status, not just with God, but also with the various communities in which we live and operate. Like this one. It will say whether you are an insider or an outsider and where you might rank within the group. It will affect how others treat you and how you benefit from these interactions. Someone who has high levels of social capital will enjoy the favor of others. End quote. Now, possessing certain kinds of things grants worth relative to the groups that we inhabit. Paul's claim is that anything we perceive as social credit is actually a deficit. In those communities shaped by the grace of Jesus, there is no social capital other than that what we, than what we share in common, namely being possessed by Christ. Perhaps a concrete example will make, help make the point. Now, I recently met a man named Cliff Nellis. Cliff grew up as an atheist in Lake Zurich, not too far away, in a white middle-class family. Eventually, Cliff went to law school at the University of Chicago, maybe you've heard of it, and did a clerkship for a federal judge, the kind of career path where one eventually makes quite a bit of money. You know, a bit like a theologian. You know? <laughs> oh boy. And that's... <laughs> I gotta stick to the script. <laughs> and that's what Cliff wanted to do originally. By his own admission, at this point in his life, he was pursuing the possession of things like money, prestige, and partying, the kinds of things perceived to carry a great deal of social capital and worth. Now, Cliff's atheist brother suddenly becomes a Christian. And like all good brothers do, they wanted to debate the matter, right? So prior to beginning a fancy job at a big law firm, Cliff buys an NIV Bible to debate his brother, in which he reads Romans 12.2. Do not, conform, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now through his encounter with God and his word, Cliff realized that his pursuit of worth through possession was futile. Christ grasped Cliff at this point of his life. And he quickly realized that his pursuit of money and prestige were not actually able to provide the worth for which he sought. Instead, he was transformed. Cliff abandons the big law firm and decides to use his gifts in law in service for Christ. He came across Lawndale Community Church on the west side of Chicago, a church committed to serving their community by offering help, especially to youth who have been through the criminal justice system. Cliff now works as the head of a group of criminal defense lawyers, case managers, outreach workers, and others who help the young people of Lawndale, especially racially minoritized young people, receive restorative services that enable and equip these kids not to recidivate and have an enormous amount of success. Cliff now lives in Lawndale and is deeply invested in using his gifts not to pursue worth in the form of social capital like wealth, racial privilege, and partying, but to pursue the love of Christ shown to the people around him. Cliff used to live a life of, I have more, 
but now lives a life of Christ has me. As a church, we can ask ourselves the same questions. On the negative side, we can inquire about what kinds of things, whether as individuals or as a community, we invest with worth that enable us to elevate some above others. What kinds of criteria for worth govern our church, whether explicitly or implicitly, spoken or unarticulated? Now consider the words of James 2, 1 through 6. Here's James. My brothers and sisters, believers in in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. The kinds of favoritism James is condemning require some external criteria of worth in order to make sense. In his case, it is wealth demonstrated through the possession of nice jewelry and clothing. Those with it are elevated within the church. Those without it are lowered. But we can substitute the gold ring and fine clothes with any kind of social capital, whether on the basis of wealth, race, gender, or even the performances of service to the church. Demonstrating partiality and favoritism on this basis, says James, compromises the gospel by taking criteria for worth provided by Christ and replacing it with criteria attached to the flesh. It says, in this community, you only belong if you are in the possession of X. Anything we put into X is nothing short of idolatry. That's the negative side. What kinds of foreign understandings of worth are we baptizing as normative for our community? There's also a positive question to be asked. Namely, how can we help those who have been crushed by the constant messages of this world that they are unworthy see that according to the rules governed by any space owned by Jesus Christ, they are worthy beyond measure? How can we grant honor to those who feel shame, pain, loneliness, abandonment, weakness, languishment, and destitution? This too is the task for any life governed by the gospel. Consider the way Paul thinks of the church as a body. In 1 Corinthians 12, he makes a powerful argument that because all Christians have been incorporated into Christ, no part of the body can be disregarded or discredited. In the eyes of the world, beautiful people are only beautiful on account of parts of their bodies, say, their eyes or their smile. No one looks at a beautiful person and thinks, I bet they have a fantastic liver. Right? But Paul looks to upend precisely this kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians 12, 22 and 23. He says, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Kind of like a liver. And the parts of, that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. In the body of Christ, worth is not attributed to the fact that you're a smile or another beautiful part of the body. 
Rather, if you are someone who receives no honor out there in the world, in this place, we look to make that right by granting you special honor. We don't play by the rules of their game. So how can we as people who recognize that our worth is attributed only to the fact that we have Christ as our head, show special honor to those who have been made to feel worthless? There are so many who are seen as worthless because of who they are or what they've experienced. In my own work, I read a lot about the experiences of those who have survived sexual assault and abuse. And it is far too often the case that the church has become an inhospitable place for the healing of their wounds. According to Paul, according to Jesus, this is unacceptable. The Christ who has claimed us has called us to honor, love, and regard as worthy those whom the world has discarded. Christ hasn't discarded them. He has claimed them too. Now, There's one final point worth mentioning, namely the fact that we are all in progress with regard to these ambitions. Paul is doing one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. We should too. If you're hearing this for the first time, that's okay. If you had forgotten this message, that's okay too. We can be gracious to one another. But let us nevertheless press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. In that goal, Christ will be all in all. Let's pray. Merciful God, you have sent your Son to become one of us, head of the body. He is the one through whom we have received life, through whom we are nourished and built up. May we be the kind of community who recognize the worth attributed to us by Christ as surpassing, as a worth that makes all other worth seem like garbage. Lord, we need your help to do this. We need your spirit. Would you disabuse our minds and our hearts of the kinds of traps and lies that make us feel like our worth depends upon us. May we instead see that the recognition you've given us in Christ Jesus surpasses them all. And it is his name we pray all these things. For with you and the Holy Spirit, I have worshiped and glorified. Amen.